Well, this morning, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, We're going to be looking at just three verses of Scripture. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14. And so if you are able, wherever you are, even if you're watching at home, I'd encourage you to stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and again reading through verse 14. Hear the Word of the Lord. I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. And I've tagged this morning's sermon, Gospel Benefits. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we dive into your word, as we hear you speak, I pray that you would give us eyes to see it, ears to hear, that as we are reminded of the benefits that are ours because of the gospel, that we would worship you more because of that, and it would drive us to be even more faithful in our pursuit of truth and righteousness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is good to be back uh, on the Lord's Day to worship our God and King, celebrate who He is and what He has done through Christ Jesus. I pray that you've already been encouraged as you've been worshiping our God. And this morning, we're continuing on in our series through the book of 1 John. So if you're visiting with us, we're in the midst of a series. Uh, We didn't just randomly pick these three verses out of Scripture. To be honest with you, if I was randomly picking verses out of Scripture to preach, I probably wouldn't have picked these ones. Uh, They're complicated to dissect. They're a little hard to understand. But I am thankful that we're preaching through the book of the Bible because if, if I wouldn't have spent some time focusing on this, I would have missed the incredible truth that John is trying to to portray to his readers in terms of the gospel benefit that is theirs in Christ Jesus. So this series as a whole through the book of 1 John is entitled The True Christian Life. The True Christian Life. And as you know, John is encouraging the believers who are reading his words to stand firm in the midst of division and false claims being made about Jesus in the church. More specifically, there are those, if you remember, in the church who are denying the incarnation of Jesus. They are denying that Jesus took on flesh. And so the church is literally fracturing over this. And what John is commending the believers to do is not to argue proper doctrine, not to have the best apologetic arguments, but rather in the midst of division, in the midst of strife, to live holy lives. And man, John... John didn't miss a beat in this letter. You know, this letter began with him jumping right into this idea that God is light and then calling true Christians to walk in the light. And we saw how in order for us to walk in the light, it requires two things of us. I mentioned it already. It requires first and foremost that we see God correctly, that we understand who he is and what his character is, what his nature is, that we understand the holiness, the righteousness, the beauty of who God is, and then that we understand ourselves correctly in light of that. And those two things, understanding God correctly and understanding ourselves correctly, will be the foundation of truth on which we stand. But second, 
Not only do we have to think correctly, but walking in the light, as we talked about last week, it requires that we actually be obedient to what God has called us to do. Right? Faithful living requires faithful living. To be a faithful Christian means that you live a faithful life. And so John, right off the bat, man, at the beginning of this book, he comes out swinging. And he skips the introduction that we're accustomed to with a lot of, you know, Paul's writing, the greetings, blessings upon you. He skips all that and just says, listen, God is light. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. He starts in on the believer's need to be faithful in the midst of chaos, division, and lies. And again, these things aren't coming from outside the church. They're coming from within the church. And so there is a great parallel between where we are today in the American church and and to those believers that John is writing to because I think you can look at the American church and see division and strife and fractures and all of this nonsense. And so the call for us as believers is not to have the best arguments, not to have the best Twitter feed and the best Facebook post. The call for us as believers, first and foremost, is to live faithful lives because I'm going to tell you, and we've, we've talked about this, if you're not living a faithful life, what you say honestly doesn't matter that much. It really doesn't matter. But in these three verses that we just read, John switches gears for just a moment. He's going to jump back into walking or living the true Christian life. But but in these verses, he kind of takes a step back. And in a sense, you get to see his pastoral heart of love for the people that he's writing to. And here's why I believe John does this. John knows that often messages like the ones that you have heard the past two weeks can be tough. They can be tough. They can be tough when we are called to live faithful lives, when we're called to walk in obedience, to know the truth. And there are a couple reasons they can be tough. First, they can be tough for us because often they point out areas where we're really dropping the ball. Let's be honest, brothers and sisters. Nobody likes for their failures to be pointed out. Even in the Christian life, it can be tough to see, man, I'm dropping the ball here. I'm dropping the ball here. I'm not being faithful here. And those can be hard messages to hear. But they can also be tough Because even if you're not struggling, faithfulness requires a lot of us. I mean, in fact, faithfulness to Jesus requires that we heed his own call when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Faithfulness costs us a lot. It's tough. Obedience is hard. And it demands a lot. And see, what John knows is that if we are not careful we can begin to see Christianity as merely a list of rules to follow. And so often, brothers and sisters, that's how the world understands Christianity. Christianity is all about what you can do and what you can't do. It's about doing these things. It's about not doing these things. And if all that Christianity is, is a list of do's and don'ts, then why in the world would we even bother to be Christians? And I think we have to be careful because regardless of why it's tough, we can find ourselves, even as believers, asking the question of, man, is this all even worth it? Is this this living a faithful life in the midst of a dark and broken, is it really worth it? Is Is this Jesus thing worth it? And if you, as a Christian, begin to see the Christian life like most of the world, and you see it as a list of do's and don'ts primarily, you will probably answer the question, is it worth it, with no. 
And what John is going to do in these three verses is John is going to address that question of, is it worth it? And in these three verses, what John does is he pauses from what he has been saying, and he basically says this, listen, I know that following Jesus is hard. I know that it requires a great deal of sacrifice and discipline, but let me, for just a moment, remind you why Jesus is worth it. Let me remind you of what he has done for you and where your power to live faithfully comes from. Let me remind you of the gospel benefits that are yours in Christ Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is simply highlight the three gospel benefits that John speaks of in these two verses. And my goal in preaching this is twofold. First, that we would be renewed in our worship of God. Because all of these benefits are ours, not because we deserve it, not because we have earned them or proven ourselves worthy. These benefits are not ours because we have been faithful. They are ours because of what Christ has done for us. But second, my prayer is that these benefits, these gifts, would be motivation for you to continue to strive to live the true Christian life. And I think ultimately that's John's aim as well. He wants to pause and remind the believers of the benefits that are theirs in Christ Jesus so that they will press on in fighting for truth and fighting for righteousness in the midst of a broken and sin-battered world. I love how Dr. Van Ness puts it when he writes in his commentary about these three verses. He says here, and that's John, he says here, John, he pauses to encourage his people with the reality of gospel promises. These truths and not browbeating are what will inspire them to persevere and to pursue holiness. And that's my hope, is that as we reflect on these gospel benefits, that we would be inspired to persevere and pursue holiness. Because as we mentioned last week, we'll never will ourselves to be holy. We don't have enough gunction in us to do that. But as we reflect on what Christ has done for us, it will motivate us to persevere and pursue holiness. So let's dive in here. Here is the first gospel benefit that John mentions here. Gospel benefit number one, our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. Look at, again at verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now, now, let me explain kind of the overall tone of these verses. John is writing, you might have noticed even in your Bibles, that it might be written a little differently than how it's been written before. It's not in its normal paragraph form, right? And so typically in the Bible, if you didn't know this, I'm going to give you kind of the cheat sheet. When you see stuff indented in English Bibles, it's telling you that they're writing in more of a poetic or, 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 or a song or a psalm type, type genre. So John is writing in more of a poetic form right here. This isn't meant to be read like a paragraph would be read. It's meant to be understood in the genre of, of, say, poetry. And so as he's writing, he speaks of three groups of people. He speaks of little children, he speaks of fathers, and he speaks of young men. And so little children is likely referring to all of his readers, regardless of their age, regardless of how long they've walked with Jesus, little children. And he uses that language in other places in the book to refer to the entire group of believers Um, and refer to them in an affectionate tone, showing his love, his fatherly concern for them. We see it in 1 John 2.18. 
So children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. By this, we know that it is the last hour. He uses the same language in chapter 2, verse 28. So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before his coming. And he refers to them as children a few other times. So it's, it's his pastorally, uh, pastoral affection for this body. But he also mentions fathers, and as he refers to fathers, he's referring to those who have a little bit more age and spiritual maturity under their belt. So he's not talking about literal fathers who have children in the church. He's speaking about those, both male and female, I would contend, who have walked with the Lord a little longer, who have a little bit more maturity under their belt, who, who are a good example for the church to look to. But then he also refers to young men. And young men refers to those individuals that are in the midst of the spiritual fight. Now, I know all of us are in the midst of the spiritual fight, but they're just kind of, they're right there. They're, they're in the thick of the spiritual fight. They're growing in sanctification. They're, they're probably a little bit more immature than they are mature, but they are fighting for holiness. And they are growing in their sanctification and overcoming sin. And so he begins and he speaks to little children. So that's all the entire body of believers. And he starts off by telling them the amazing truth that in Christ Jesus, your sins are forgiven. He begins with the greatest gospel benefit of all. That you, who, who were separated from God because of your sin, you, who deserve death and hell for all eternity, one of the greatest gospel benefit, to you, your sins are forgiven. And church, I pray that we never grow tired of this truth. Because our greatest need as human beings has been and will always be to have our sins forgiven. Listen, your greatest need is not to have your bills paid. Your greatest need is not to have a better job. Your greatest need is not to find a spouse. Your greatest need is not to have a comfortable life. Your greatest need is not to be physically helpful or healthy. Your greatest need is not for COVID to go away. Your greatest need is that your sins would be forgiven. And listen to me, sin has been the problem that has plagued every person from every generation since Adam and Eve. The words of Genesis 3-6 ring through eternity as a declaration of our condemnation. You remember Genesis 3-6? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Listen, this single act of disobedience initiated a curse that has plagued every person who has ever taken breath in this world. Adam's decision to sin affected all of us. Paul writes in Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. You see, it wasn't just that we inherited Adam's guilt, which we did. We are by nature sinful, but we also inherited his disposition of disobedience, meaning that all of us are born with a nature that is contrary to the things of God, and as a result, all people sin. Do you know how I know this is true? Because to sin and be disobedient, it takes no work. It is natural for us. It flows out of us because we are Adam's children. But obedience takes work and the power of the Spirit working in us. 
Because of that sin, death spread to everyone. And again, Paul, this time in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, reminds us that in Adam all die. And church, we deserve to die because of our sin. Our sin is nothing less than treason against a holy and righteous and good king. We deserve death. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 3, these words ring true, that we are by nature children under wrath. You know what the saddest part about it all is, brothers and sisters? There is nothing we can do to fix this. Nothing. You cannot be good enough to overcome your sin nature. You cannot be faithful enough to earn God's favor. But here is the truth that John is impressing on the hearts of his readers. This is the truth that I want to impress on your heart. Our God forgives sins. And all throughout Scripture, from the moment that sin entered the world, on every page of Scripture, since Genesis 3, 6, 6 there has been a, a God-ordained anticipation of forgiveness. There was an anticipation of forgiveness when God killed the animal in the garden and wrapped Adam and Eve in its bloody and bleeding flesh. There was an anticipation of forgiveness when Isaac's life was spared as Abraham saw the ram caught by its horns. There was an anticipation of forgiveness when God told the Israelites in slavery to place blood on the doorpost so the angel of death, death would pass them by. There was an anticipation of forgiveness when God established the day of atonement and said in Leviticus 16.30, atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you and you will be clean from all your sin before the Lord. There was an anticipation of forgiveness when David wrote in Psalm 51 verses 2 and 3, completely wash me from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. There was an anticipation of forgiveness as Isaiah recounts God's promise in Isaiah 1, 18 and says, and says God says, come let's settle this. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. And John the Baptist knew the anticipation was coming to an end when he declared in John 1, 29, as Jesus approached him, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The story of Scripture is one of anticipation, a longing for, a believing in, an expectation of forgiveness. And again, not because we deserve it, but because our God who promises is faithful. And that anticipation ends as Jesus hangs on a cross in our place. His blood shed, His body broken, and from His wounds, forgiveness for sins flow. He took the punishment we deserve. He took the death we deserved. And He alone provides forgiveness. And here John pauses to remind the believers who are reading that because of Jesus Christ, because of your faith in Him and your dependence on His work on the cross, your sins are forgiven. They are forgiven. Your greatest need has been met in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Our greatest need has been met in Christ Jesus. 
And brothers and sisters, we cannot forget that that is our greatest need. Because there is a temptation to try and judge God's faithfulness by whether or not He is bending to our every wish, by whether or not He is answering the prayers the exact way that we want them answered, by whether or not He is doing things in this world exactly the way that we want them done. And we forget that the faithfulness of God is most clearly displayed in the fact that He has provided a way of forgiveness. Let me tell you something, Christian. If God never does anything else for you, Though he will do more because he has promised to do more. But if God doesn't do anything else for you but forgive your sins, he has already met your greatest need. And at the end of the day, nothing else needs to be done. If God never gives you victory over that physical ailment in this life, your sins are still forgiven. If God never gives you the spouse that you have been praying for all the days that you can remember, he has still met your greatest need and your sins are forgiven. If this world crumbles under our feet, he has still met our greatest need and our sins are forgiven. Your bills might not be paid. Your health may not be perfect. Your marriage might not be what you want it to be, yet still we rejoice. There is joy for us in the fact that our sins are forgiven. David writes in Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, how joyful, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. How joyful we should be. We have reason to celebrate, brothers and sisters. And we have a reason to serve him. Because in Christ Jesus, our sins are forgiven. I know I keep saying it a lot, but I don't think I can say it enough. Amen? Our sins are forgiven. Look, in my opinion, John could have stopped there because that's the only gospel benefit I think we really need. Amen? Our sins are forgiven. But if that's not enough, if you're not convinced of the benefits that are yours in Christ Jesus, John goes even further and he tells you another benefit that you have. Here's gospel benefit number two. Not only are your sins are forgiven... But you have fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. Now look at the beginning of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14. John says, I am writing to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. He says, I have written this beginning of verse 14. Now I have written to you children because you have come to know the father. And so listen, when John writes this, he is not speaking about, he's not speaking of knowing things about God. He's not talking about being able to recount some facts about God. That's not what he means when he says, know God. See, this knowing God is deeper than that. It is, a more, it is more meaningful than that. This is a knowing that means we are in intimate fellowship with God. It is speaking of being united to God. And in essence, John is continuing to highlight the majesty of what has been accomplished when our sins We're forgiven because here's the amazing thing. When we receive forgiveness of sins through the work of Jesus Christ, it isn't that we are forgiven and now we can just go on living however we want to live. It's not that we just go back to life as normal. No, we talked about this last week, right? An encounter with Jesus changes everything. Forgiveness of sin changes everything. And one of the amazing things that it changes is that now, for the first time, we can have real fellowship with God. 
not just know a lot of stuff about him, though I want to know a lot of stuff about him, amen, so that I can love him more for who he is. But now what John's getting at is that, man, you know him intimately. You are in fellowship with God. You see, we'll come to this in a bit. I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but in the next chapter, John's going to deal with our familial relationship with God. Because he writes in, in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. John says, whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. Again, my goal is not to break that down. I know that, that, that's a lot to try to process and to chew through, and we will get there in a few weeks. But what I want you to see, the reason I read that to you, is because John understands and is communicating that not every person falls into the category of God's child. Not every person is a child of God. And listen, I know You've heard me talk about it before. I know that is a common sentiment in our day and age. Well, we're all God's children. We got to love one another because we're all God's children. You've heard me say it like this. We are all God's creation. We are all made in his image. Therefore, we have intrinsic worth and value because the image of God is imprinted on us. But it does not mean we are all God's children. We don't get that privilege until our sins are forgiven. But once they are forgiven, oh, we are brought from darkness to life. We who are not a people, we are now a people with a king and a father. See, we have to remember that the position of being a child of God is rightly reserved for those whose sins have been forgiven. The position of being a child of God is rightly, it is rightly reserved for those whose sins have been forgiven. And the reason for this is because God cannot be in fellowship with those who are not righteous. God cannot be in fellowship with those who are not righteous. Again, we can go back to the garden and see that. Adam and Eve, prior to sinning, were walking in perfect fellowship with God. They were in his presence 24-7, delighting in him, savoring him, walking in the right fellowship that so many of us want. It's kind of mind-boggling to think that they chose sin. But when they sinned, do you remember? God asked a very, very significant question. Where are you? It is not because God lost track of their physical being. It is because in that statement, God is highlighting the fact that now for the first time, there is distance between us. We are no longer in right fellowship. We are no longer walking in one accord. In fact, we're going in two very, very different directions. God cannot tolerate sin. This is why the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 59 too, but your iniquities are separating you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. John already dealt with this. We saw it in 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. Fellowship with God is reserved for those who are righteous. Now you might be thinking, hold on, Michael. The Bible says there is none righteous, that we all fall short of the glory of God. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I still struggle with unrighteousness. I still struggle with sin. Amen. We all do. You are right. But see, therein lies the beauty of the first gospel benefit. 
Because when God forgives, he fully forgives. See, as David writes in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. See, when Jesus forgives, he not only casts our sins away, but we receive something from him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Martin Luther referred to this as the great exchange, the wonderful exchange, the happy exchange where Christ takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. Yes, believer, you may still battle sin, but the amazing things about being washed in the blood of Jesus is that when God the Father looks at you, he does not see your sin anymore. He sees the righteousness of Christ that you wear as a result of your faith and repentance. And in his righteousness, we are restored to fellowship with God. We can now live at peace with our God and walk in fellowship with him, with God as our father and Jesus as our big brother. In Christ, we are children of God. We have fellowship. And and brothers and sisters, before I move on from this one, that brings with it some amazing benefits being able to fellowship with God. I mean, there are so many we could list, but let me, let me give you a few of the benefits that are yours because we have fellowship with God. First, you have access to God. You have access to God. Ephesians 3.12, in Him, in Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. We can now go directly to God. And you know that until Christ, that couldn't happen. Do you remember in the temple, there was something that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else? It was this giant curtain, right? In the book that we read our daughters, it's called the keep out curtain because God could not be bothered and wretchedness. He is too holy for that. And so we were separated from the very presence of God. And it's often overlooked in the story of Jesus's crucifixion. But when he died, that curtain was ripped in two. And the keep out curtain is gone. And we now have access to God through Christ Jesus. Your fellowship with God is not a cute talking point. It is the means by which you can go directly to your father. And here's the best part. He loves it. And he listens. And he delights in the prayers of his people. Here's another benefit that you have by being in fellowship with God. You have a power which comes from God. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. You see, that's the amazing thing about being united to Christ in faith is that when we are united with Him, His Spirit dwells in us and we have power. It's not a power that comes from ourselves. It's not, it's not a power that we muster up on our own, but His Spirit dwells in us. And indeed, God has given us divine power He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so what that means, saint, is that as you you struggle to love Jesus, as you struggle to be obedient and you battle sin and you fight for holiness, you don't have to have a power that comes from within yourself. Because God has given you divine power through the Spirit that works. 
I think of what Paul says when he says, listen, I have learned to be content in weakness. Because in my weakness, God's power is on full display. God shows up and God shows out. We have a power which comes from God because we are in fellowship with him. But here's, here's another benefit that we have by being in fellowship with God. We have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. Ephesians 1 verses 11 through 13, Paul says, In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. It says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. And it goes on to speak of how, how the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we will receive our inheritance. Listen, I don't know what you have in store for you in this life. I don't. I don't know if your family or your parents are leaving you anything. I don't know if you have an earthly inheritance waiting for you. But because you have fellowship with God, you have an inheritance that is secure in glory waiting for you. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that you will receive that inheritance all because you have fellowship with God. But here's another benefit. If that wasn't enough, here's another benefit of being in fellowship with God. You are family. You are family. Galatians 4, 6, it says, And because you are sons, God sent the Holy Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father, listen, it's not just that we know about God and that we know a few few truths about him. It is that because we are in fellowship with him, he is our father. And we can cry out to him as a father who loves us. He will listen. And, and he, again, he delights. He delights in his children crying out to him. He is a good, good father. And in Christ, because of our fellowship with God, he is our father. Here's the final benefit that I want to mention, and there are so many more, but the final benefit of being in fellowship with God, ultimately, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Romans 5, 1 reminds us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, all of this, not because we deserve it, not because we have done enough stuff, but because of God's love for us and the grace that he has shown us because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross on our behalf. And beloved, we have to cling to these truths. We have to hold on to these truths because Satan wants nothing more than to convince us that they are not true. Satan wants nothing more to convince us that we do not have fellowship with God, that we are not at peace with God. He wants us to believe that our sins are not forgiven. That's why Martin Luther once said to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. Why? Because Satan wants us not to believe those things. He is fighting to, to confuse us so that we would believe that we are not right with God, that our sins are not forgiven, that we are still at war with God. But brothers and sisters, because of what Christ has done, because of Jesus and Jesus alone, we have genuine fellowship with God. We have peace 
with him. Because we are united to God, because of the fellowship that we have through Christ's work, we know that we have the victory. And this leads to the third and final gospel benefit that I want you to see this morning. The the third benefit that, that John is trying to impress on the hearts of the readers. Here it is. Gospel benefit number three. Victory. Victory. Look at what John says in the second half of verse 13 and the second half of verse 14. Verse 13, he says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. Second half of verse 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and God's word remains in you and you have conquered the evil one. As John writes this, he is reminding the readers of the victory that they have in Christ Jesus. And how John writes this, I want you to get this, it's very significant. So do you see in both verse 13 and verse 14 where it says that that they have conquered? They have conquered. John writes that verb in in the Greek language. He writes it in the perfect active indicative. It's all right if you don't know what that means. I'm going to tell you what that means. What that means is, right, John is referring to a past action that has ongoing implications. So in the past, they have conquered. How? By having their sins forgiven and living in fellowship with God. And I I want to be crystal clear. John is not saying that they have conquered the evil one by their own power. He's not saying that. He's not saying they have conquered Satan in their own strength. John is reminding them of the fact that they are united to the one who has conquered. In Jesus, we have victory now and forevermore. When we are clothed in his righteousness, his victory becomes our victory. See, that's the beauty of our union with Christ. What's his is ours. And what's ours is his. Brothers and sisters, oh, let me remind you, we serve a victorious Savior. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 through 56, for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. And when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Here it is, brothers and sisters. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has conquered sin. He has conquered death and His victory is sure. Jesus Christ has conquered sin. He has conquered death and his victory is sure. And as we are united to Christ, his victory becomes our victory and we can declare with utter confidence what Paul writes in Romans 8, 31 through 37. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more, he has been raised. 
And he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And then in verse 37, Paul says this. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. We have the victory in Christ Jesus through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Again, everything that is his is ours, and he has won the victory, and that means it's ours. But again, going back to how John writes this, because it isn't just that a victory was won in the past. He writes it in such a way as to remind us that this victory is ongoing and has present day implications. It isn't just that they have conquered, it's that they are continuing to conquer. Well, how? Well, John tells us there in verse 14, I have written to you young men because you are strong. Here it is. God's word remains in you. And you have conquered the evil one. So John is pointing to the truth that they continue to conquer. They continue to kill sin. They continue to strive for holiness as they cling to God through his word. Psalm 119 verse 9 reminds us, how can a young man keep his way pure? Listen, you want to fight for holiness? You want to walk in obedience? How can you keep your way pure? Well, the psalmist says, by keeping your word, by keeping God's word. And I want to encourage you, Christian, I want to encourage you with this. If you are battling for faithfulness, if you are feeling like you are failing to live a holy life, one of the benefits of your salvation is victory through Christ. Therefore, you are victorious. Not just because your sins were forgiven, but ongoing. There is victory for you. There's victory for you. I love how John Stott speaks of the young might be in the midst of conflict. They might be battling sin and fighting for holiness, but they are already conquerors in Christ Jesus. In other words, they may battle against sin, but their victory is guaranteed. Why? Because Jesus' victory is sure. Brothers and sisters, we who are in Christ should be the most hopeful. We should be the most joyous. We should be the most confident because we fight knowing the outcome. We pursue holiness knowing that the realization of it is guaranteed when we dwell with God in glory. You will be holy one day. I've been guilty of that, let's be honest. Right? You hear me talk about it all the time. We struggle with patterns of sin, and when those patterns show up, sometimes it can just feel like we are fighting a losing battle. But what God is declaring to us is that one of the victories that we have in Christ Jesus, or, or one of the benefits we have in Christ Jesus, is the guarantee of victory. So we do not fight as if we are losing. We fight knowing that we have already won. As we fight for holiness, we fight believing the victory is already ours in Christ Jesus. Yes, you will battle every day of your life here on this earth. But brothers and sisters, one day, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Sin will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Our victory is secure. 
And what I want to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, is that every one of these benefits that John writes to his readers, they are not just their benefits, they are ours if we are in Christ Jesus. And my prayer is that you would savor these truths. Let these truths motivate you to continue to run hard after Jesus because you are serving a Savior who has forgiven your sins. You are serving a Savior who has given you access and fellowship to God. And you are serving a Savior who is victorious. Who else would we rather serve? Who else? But as we close, I want to say this. If you are watching or you're here and you're listening and you have not placed your faith in Jesus, I want you to know that these benefits, are not, they are not yours. They are not. They are reserved for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And apart from Jesus, as we mentioned earlier, you are still dead in your trespasses and sin. You are still by nature a child of wrath, and you will feel the full weight and judgment and separation from God for all of eternity. But God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for your sins. And through his death and resurrection, him raising from the dead three days later, we can come in faith and repentance by, by banking all of our hope on him, by turning from our sins and running after God. And when we do that, all of the benefits of Christ are ours. And so I encourage you, if you have never trusted in Jesus, to trust in him this morning. I'd love to talk more with you about that if that is you. Brothers and sisters, as we continue over the next few weeks to press into this idea of living the true Christian life, let me just remind you that even when we falter, even when we fail, even when we don't have it all together, these benefits still stand because of what Christ has done. Your sins are forgiven. You have fellowship with God and you are guaranteed the victory. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, God, we want to just pause and thank you for what Christ has done for us. And thank you for the grace that you have shown us and the gifts that you have given us through Jesus. God, we don't deserve this. We could have never acquired them on our own, and yet you are a God of kindness and grace and mercy. And so we praise you for our salvation. God, I pray for those of us who are Christians that every day we would praise you for our salvation. Let it never just be a story to us. Let it never just be words that we spout out, God, but remind us daily of the reality of the fact that you have loved us and you have called us and you have saved us and it is your grace and your grace alone that makes us what we are. And help us to worship you and run hard after you. God, if there is someone who is listening who has never placed their faith in you, I would that they would taste your grace and see your goodness and that they would want nothing else. God, I praise you that you are still a God who saves. We give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.